This episode is sponsored by Atlantic Records. You're listening to The Plug with Neil Griffith. What's up, everybody? Welcome to The Plug Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Griffiths. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you're a regular listener, welcome back to the fun. If you're new, welcome to the show. Before we get into it, as always, if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this episode on right now. And be sure to follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at theplug.podcast. We had a big response to last week's episode, and I can tell you right now, officially, the Matchbox 20 episode is now on YouTube. You can go over there, again, at theplug.podcast, and watch the full episode with Rob Thomas and Paul Doucette. Moving on to this week's show. My guest this week is someone that I've not only been such a fan of for such a long time, but easily one of my favorite people to have come on this show in the history of the show. My guest this week is actor, producer, writer, and New York Times bestselling author, Rain Wilson. Rain came on the show ahead of the upcoming release of his new book, Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution, which is out everywhere on April 25th. Now, most people will know Rain from his work on the big and small screen, featuring in films like Galaxy Quest, Almost Famous, Juno, The Rocker, and Super, and in TV shows like Six Feet Under, Entourage, and of course, his biggest role and one of TV's most iconic characters as Dwight Schrute in The Office. But in this new book, Rain explores the possibility of a global spiritual revolution. As you'll hear me sum up in this episode, in a line, the world and systems we live in are a mess and we need a global reset. I have been such a huge fan of Rain and all of his work, and yes, I am an office diehard, but it was such a cool experience to sit down with him and talk about everything from life and death and why his new book is so important right now. We also talk about the controversy surrounding a tweet he posted some weeks back that made international news, and of course, his on-screen work. His mental health struggles while his star continued to rise on The Office, how he dealt with fame, and what's still to come from Rain. I can't even begin to tell you how excited I am to have Rain on the show and to have the opportunity to sit down with Rain for an hour and just talk about so many different things with him is truly one of the best things I've been able to do on this show. But, spoiler alert, at the beginning of this episode, we go on a little tangent about Succession, so if you haven't seen the latest season, maybe fast forward two to three minutes, you've been warned. Here is Rain Wilson joining me right now on the Plug Podcast. All right, welcoming to the Plug Podcast. I am beyond wow. thrilled. Wow, Neil, that introduction was incredible. Thank oh, you. Well, that was okay. one of the best introductions I've ever received, Neil. Thank you so much. You are welcome. And I I'm spent weeks, weeks. Doing what? Writing the intro. Oh, okay, okay. Right. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say something else. No, it's okay. Well, I, I didn't even get to say it, but welcoming to the show, Mr. Rain Wilson. Sir, welcome to the podcast. It is my profound pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I always like to just get straight into the podcast when we jump on these Zoom calls because I find it very awkward and uncomfortable just making small talk when the whole point of a podcast is to talk. So um, straight off the bat, I am and have been such a fan of yours for years. It is so great to talk to you. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. That's great. Yeah, um, what do you want to talk about? We can talk about anything. Well, look, the, the show is yours. Uh, we can talk about anything. I know you were just on the LA highway. Um, how was that? How was that day for you? You know, it's, um, it's soul sucking. So I just did <laughs> this. Um, I just did this uh, show called The Geography of Bliss. Mm -hmm. It's going to be on Peacock at the end of May. And it's so funny because in research for the show, it's about me traveling the world looking for happiness and what makes people happy around the world and why some cultures are better at it than we are. But in, in all of the happiness research, one of the things that they say that most greatly reduces quality of life is uh, traffic on a commute. Um, it is I like one it. of the, it's like literally like cancer, divorce <laughs> and like, and traffic on a, on a freeway and um, getting around Los Angeles is, is hellacious. Is that a word? And um, it's brutal. But I, I, 
I strive to bring joy and bliss and uplift to whatever I interact with. So I'll, I'll try and let that go. Are we allowed to plug the Peacock series yet? Do we have a release date? Yeah, it's coming out uh, May 18th. Great. Okay. Um, and before we get into the main topic of the show, which is this great book you're about to release, did you watch the latest episode of Succession? How do you feel about it? I did. Uh, I am a Succession junkie. It's mm -hmm. maybe the only show. No, that's not true. Because now I'm halfway through The Sopranos a second time, although that was oh, wow. 20 years later. But it's the only show that I kind of, I watch every episode twice, you know, within yeah. the first couple months of it coming out. Because we, one time to see the plot and how it unfolds. And the second time just to listen and revel in the dialogue, which is just extraordinary. And it's so nuanced and complicated and funny and sharp. Um, but yeah, this last episode really surprised me. I mean, I... I did not think that we were going to lose him uh, this uh, quickly on in this season. And that I did not think that that was how they were going to cover it was just with a phone call, you know, mm -hmm. just a phone call, your dad's dying or is dead. And that was a master stroke because that's how you find out this stuff, you know, and then what it feels like in that just that 20 minute continuous scene of the scrambling of the family to try and um, make sense of it and process it and figure out their own agendas and their grief and their kind of relief at the same time was, it's one of the best television episodes I've ever seen. And I love as well, they don't show you Logan at all. So for the first half of the episode, you think this is a play, this is a ploy. Yeah. And then they kind time. of just very nonchalantly show Logan's head. They don't even show his face. Just he is on the ground. Yeah. It's happening. It's just so yeah. well done. And his shirt off and, yeah. and so vulnerable. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it was, it was really, that show is, is really next level. I'm, mm. I'm really in, truly in awe. Well, look, we can talk about succession later in my succession podcast. It's not a real thing. Okay. I promise. Good. But uh, congratulations on this book, soul boom, why we need a spiritual revolution. I got this book, we, we set this interview up probably two, maybe three weeks ago when I thought, oh, okay, I have plenty of time to read this. Once I started reading it, it was done in 24 hours. I, wow. I relate to it so much. I have so many thoughts and feelings about it. And so much of what you wrote in the book, I felt like spoke to people like me and of the same mindset. So just to straight off the bat, I'm not a religious person but I have grown up in Catholicism, primary and high school, Catholic, high, sorry, Catholic schools. So maybe just to, to preface this, maybe just give us like a, a quick two, three sentence synopsis of this book, because I know you did the interview with Russell Brain a few days ago, which I watched and was so great as well. I promise you, I'm not going to be anywhere near as articulate as Russell Brand. But my big thesis for this for anyone that I talk to about it is, the world is a mess. We need a giant reset and a refocus. But maybe I'll let you do the, the short synopsis. Well, you know, I've only done uh, a small handful of podcasts and interviews about the book so far uh, because it's not coming out for a couple more weeks at the time mm -hmm. of, our, of our conversation right now. Mm -hmm. So I haven't really learned how to sum it up uh, succinctly. Uh, and I thought what you said is just spot on. Um, the world is in a mess of trouble. And if we think we're going to fix it with band-aids and little pieces of legislation and small changes in political parties, uh, we are entirely 100% wrong. So humanity needs to rethink how it does everything. And my thesis is that there are spiritual tools embedded in the world's great religious and faith traditions um, that you don't need to be a member of any religion. This is not a book purporting you, purporting you, coaxing you toward any religious membership. So don't worry, everyone. Everyone settle down. <laughs> this is a book that, however, says Western society has thrown religion out uh, for the most part, for mo very good reasons, by and large. But in so doing, we've also lost sight of the fact that um, there are spiritual tools. There are spiritual foundations uh, to what it means to be a human being that can be applied to 
societal transformation as well as personal transformation. Before we, we get into it as well, I know that you were writing this in the early stages of the pandemic. Is that correct? Yeah, it was um, when the pandemic hit, I was very sad at people dying and the world in great chaos and confusion. But inside, I was just a teeny tiny bit gleeful. I was a little bit like, yay, um, now's my chance to write <clears throat> this book that I've been wanting to write for years on issues that I've been mulling over and coaxing and thinking and nurturing for decades. And so I started in and then about four or five months into starting to write the book, my dad died. And this was uh, heartbreaking. He uh, had heart disease and died uh, about five months into COVID, three or four months into COVID while getting a quadruple bypass. And <clears throat> it was devastating. My dad and I were very close. Uh, we had gone through a lot together. My mom actually left me and my dad when I was about a year and a half old and I stayed with him. I was one of the rare kids that went with his father. So I was very close to him. Uh, we had a lot of ups and downs, but his death really prompted in me some far greater reaching thoughts and feelings. And um, it was, um, it was in a, a, a very difficult and very important transition. And one of the chapters in the book is about death. I hit all the big topics. I've got God, death, consciousness, the sacred, you know, religion. The notorious G.O.D. was a personal favorite of mine. The notorious G.O.D. is a chapter <laughs> about God, but the chapter on death is death and how to live it. And I think, you know, I had a transcendent moment when I saw my dad on the table uh, having passed away and just a deep and profound realization that, oh, this is not my father. This is the vessel that carried my father's essence, spirit, soul, heart, life energy around for 79 years. But this is not his reality. And it's just, it's so clear when you see a corpse on a table, sorry to be so crass, but it's mm. true. Um, and as heartbreaking as it was, it got me thinking deeper about death, life after death, the soul, and our human journey um, here on this physical plane and in the infinite planes beyond this one. And what that means for us as a species, because one of my central theses in the book, uh, there's several, but, uh, and by the way, Neil, I try and make it funny too. This is not all doom and gloom and, and kind of philosophical profundity. Yeah. Um, I try and have, tell some jokes along the way, but the idea that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. And once we frame life in that context, uh, that puts a lot of things in perspective and death can be a very valuable perspective giver. So that, that kind of one-two punch of COVID, having the time to write my father's death really being a, a further catalyst uh, were some of the ingredients that got me probing these incredibly uh, challenging topics. No, thank you for, for mentioning that story because that was one of the moments in the books that was really, really hit something with me as well. And the idea that, you know, consciousness can't end when we die. I know that in, the, in recent years, a lot of maybe mainstream pop culture fans might relate to some stuff that Jim Carrey has said a lot in recent years. And for people who don't know, he said he kind of lost his identity when he played Andy Kaufman in, in Man on the Moon. And now he kind of says that, Jim Carrey doesn't exist. I don't exist. I, that Jim Carrey was a character. Is that something that you relate to when you talk about, you know, the, the body being a vessel? Well, uh, that's an interesting perspective. I've never thought of it in, in the, quite those terms. Uh, there's many different ways of looking at this, you know, in the Hindu idea of reincarnation, where the spirit comes back to kind of work out its issues on the planet. And the Buddhist idea of the bodhisattva who uh, reaches nirvana and Buddhahood, but chooses to return back to a human experience 
to serve others and to help deliver them from their suffering. Um, that's similar to uh, the Baha'i concept. I'm a, I'm a member of the Baha'i faith and the Baha'i concept is that when we are born, we have a soul um, that is attached or in reference to, in conjunction with our embryo that develops. And that's kind of phase one of life is being in utero. And while we're in the womb, we are growing the physical components that we will need for life on this earth. I mean, I was just thinking the other day that babies have fully functioning eyeballs, you know, at yeah. eight months, you know, that can do all of these miraculous things. They can they have rods and cones and lenses and they refract and they go into the brain and there's a, you know, they can see color and, and yet they're not, they're not functioning because they, they haven't encountered light yet. Mm. But, oh, will they, they soon, they will encounter that light. Oh boy, will they <laughs> and how, but not yet. So that death, the womb death is a birth to a new reality, a much greater, richer, more complicated reality. And in the Baha'i kind of mythology, the same thing happens when we leave our meat suits behind and move on to our next plane of existence, where we're leaving this physical plane and moving on to an even deeper reality. And, and the, the eyes and ears and elbows and noses and senses that we take with us into the next world are the spiritual qualities that we're growing in this one. So our compassion, our kindness, our heart, our humility, our honesty, our, our love, our joy, our creativity, all of these qualities of the divine, we nurture in us during this, our, you know, our 70, 80, 90 year spin around the sun. And then we take those with us, um, into the next phase. So that's, that's a little closer to my personal belief, but there's, it's all so mysterious. Who the hell knows? And I suppose this is a silly question when I say it out loud, but I love the idea of like doing good things now, being a good person now, loving your neighbor now. How could that be a bad thing to anyone religious or not? How can anyone not abide by that simple concept of just being a good person? But when you relate that to the afterlife, whatever that may be, why do we need to be good now if there is an afterlife regardless? Well, that's exactly why, because, well, there's a number of reasons why. First and foremost, it's what we should do. It's what all the great spiritual and religious teachers of the world have taught us to do, is to be better and better people and to work on ourselves, our character defects, and to, and to encourage our, our better qualities. Um, our angel qualities, not our devil qualities, our better angels, as Abraham Lincoln would say. Um, so many, let, let's say, fundamentalist Christians might say, as long as I accept Jesus, I'm saved. So who the hell cares what I do in this world? This world is just a way stop. It doesn't really count for anything. I'm just living for the next world. I'm going to be saved, and I'm going to go to heaven and sit with Jesus and drink wine and play the harp. For a lot of atheists, they might say, screw the next world, there's no next world. At the end of this consciousness, it's just lights out and mm -hmm. uh, blackness. And um, just like it was in pre-existence, we have no memory of pre-existence, we'll just cease. So let's live just for this world, just live for this world completely. So what I'm proposing is that it's some of both. We live for this world, uh, because each day is a precious miracle that is fleeting and we should enjoy it. But also in this world, we have the opportunity to grow these spiritual qualities that we will need as we move on to subsequent uh, worlds of existence, planes of existence. So we, we, are, we are kind, we seek to be kind, because A, it's the right thing to do. Uh, B, it makes the world a better place. But C, as we develop our kindness, kindness is, we're not gonna have Teslas and Rolexes and houses and you know, you know, iPhones in the next world. We are gonna take with us those qualities. So kindness is what are, is going to be 
our literal eyes in the next plane of existence. Mm -hmm. This is all very metaphorical. It's not, I'm, I'm speaking about it like it's this kind of, kind of formula, but it's all much more glorious and mysterious than the way I'm, the way I'm, um, talking about it. The, the, the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, Abdul Baha says, he has a quote that says, become ye light incarnate. And I love that idea that, and when you meet really special people, there's a glow, right? There's a light to them. Like you see joy and creativity and, and compassion and, and, and humor and love and everything they do. And you see it in their eyes. And that's what we want to strive to develop. I mean, we mentioned at the start of the podcast, my, my mini thesis of the book is, you know, we need a giant reset. And you mentioned yeah. some of the, the things happening in the world today, things like climate change. You know, you mentioned gun control and the fact that something needs to be done, otherwise children will keep getting shot in schools. That happened two weeks ago. But one thing in particular that I wanted to mention was you put out a tweet maybe a month ago now, and it was about... Uh, the the priest in the Last of Us HBO series, and you said that there's a potentially an anti-Christian bias in Hollywood because why is the priest always evil? And I know we gave succession spoilers. The Last of Us spoilers is that character turns out to be a pedophile, a murderer, and a cannibal. And both sides, no matter where you sat, people had a field day with that. You know, Fox yeah. News were almost using you as a spokesperson for them, but. When I saw that tweet, I was like, is anyone actually reading the fucking tweet? You weren't, you weren't trying to pick a side or, or take a shot. It was a, it was a simple valid fact. And I, I, when I saw that tweet, I laughed because I agreed, you know, like any law and order episode, anytime there's a priest, I'm like, that guy did it. Yeah, this is, it's, I'm glad you bring this up because to me, it was just, it was a tweet about lazy screenwriting. Mm. Cause it's like, I see a priest reading from the Bible. I'm like, oh, he's going to be bad. So why do I jump to that conclusion? Not because priests are bad. Many of them have done really horrible things. And I hope they, I don't believe in a hell, but I hope they burn in whatever the closest <laughs> thing to hell might be. But um, it's just lazy screenwriting. It's totally unnecessary to have that extra level of reading a Bible. He could have been reading a cookbook, you know? Well, he's cannibal. That might've been a little <laughs> bit weird. Human chili or something, I don't know. Sure. But, yeah, so that tweet, we, part of the reset that I uh, talk about in my book is I talk a lot about partisan politics as a litmus test of how broken society is. Recently, Joe Biden greenlit natural gas drilling. Uh, it's called like the Willow Project or something mm. like that. Silence from the political left. If that had been Donald Trump in office, greenlighting it, there would have been hundreds of thousands of people marching in the streets and protests in Congress. There's such hypocrisy where we stand by our party, right or wrong. I just heard recently Ben Shapiro talking about justifying this billionaire Nazi memorabilia collector and his friendship with Clarence Thomas and taking him on all these vacations and cruises and stuff like that. Ben Shapiro, who is so quick to point out any kind of act of, you know, something that might be considered anti-Semitic, here is defending this billionaire Republican donor with who's got a signed Mein Kampf and on display in his house. And he's like, well, what's wrong with that? He's a collector. The I mean, idea, I think people, he said that people collect things to remind them that it's bad. It's like, I don't need, yeah. a, I don't need Mein Kampf to know that Mein Kampf I probably I wasn't a great read. I have never met a single person in my life who collects something to know that it's bad. Yeah. So, but the, my point is not to, to knock on him. It's like both of these cases show us that there is incredible hypocrisy in this party system where we have pledged our loyalty to these parties come hell or high water. And we are, they are raking in hundreds of millions of dollars and all they are seeking is power and they are not seeking uh, public service and uh, the betterment of society. So this tweet is an example of that. I'm Fox News puts me on a pedestal. Rain Wilson calls out Hollywood for being anti-Christian. And then, you know, liberal secular folks uh, rail against me uh, about it. When just a month previous, I had tweeted about climate change and 
or I had done this stunt where I changed my name for climate change on this app that we had developed. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I was vilified on the front page of Fox news for doing that. Like, Oh, this ridiculous Hollywood elite mm -hmm. changed his name for climate change. Oh, he probably flies around on his private jet, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And, and I was lauded by the political left for doing it. So it's, but people never look at the toxicity of partisanship. They only look at the toxicity of the other party, of the party that they're against. And they only hope to fix things with band-aids and not a wholesale reset. We're never going to fix problems in America with a two-party system that's raking in hundreds of millions of dollars that seeks to stab the other party and gain power because those, <clears throat> excuse me, because those impulses are the worst impulses in, in humanity. Uh, One-upsmanship, dog-eat-dog, aggrandizement, aggression, contest, competition. Those are all the worst impulses in humanity and all of our social systems are built on those concepts and those energies and those ways of interacting. So this sounds, I'm realizing how long-winded this is all sounding, but getting back to spirituality, I remember in the 70s when people used to talk about world peace and pray for world peace and wish for world peace and hope for world peace and strive for world peace. Nowadays, if you talk about world peace, people roll their eyes. They think you're the most naive idiot to walk the face of the earth Human beings are all have always been this way. They always are. They're never going to have world peace. We just have to try and not blow the fucking shit out of each other. And um, it's all one gigantic eye roll. But if we want to affect real and lasting change, we have to take a giant step back and look at the systems and the foundation upon which those systems are built on. So I get into I get into spirituality. I get into into death, life after death, the soul, consciousness, God, because I want to like percolate on these spiritual concepts a little bit to realize that there are ingredients in spirituality that we can apply to societal change, not just personal transformation, like, oh, I, I can be a better person and more serene and more peaceful and I can control my anxiety. I can also create community based on cooperation and on compassion and on mutual giving and uh instead of being self-centered being other centered mm. we really can do that we have done it in the past we can do it again but we have to believe that we can make that change after over 10 years matchbox 20 is back their new album where the light goes is out may 26 featuring the new single, Wild Dogs Running in a Slow Dream, which is out right now. Pre-order the album now at matchbox20.com. Do you think then that conversation across the board is a good thing? And again, I mentioned Russell Brand because he was someone that when he started The Trues, his YouTube channel, it was kind of fighting the corporations. Now the political left believes that when he has people like Shapiro or Jordan Peterson on his show, he's now fighting for them. But is there not a middle ground where regardless of your political beliefs, the only way forward is to talk, is to understand each other? Um, I believe that we need dialogue. Um, we have to start with dialogue and we have to find that common point of unity and work on fostering that. We've been arguing nonstop for decades, right? Turn on a news show, Crossfire, left, right, and center, mm -hmm. Sunday morning chat shows, and they are just at each other. And like, well, the left, blah, 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 blah. And well, the Republicans, blah, blah, blah. And the Democrats, blah, 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 blah. Like, we've tried that. It's not, it's only separating people more. There's only creating further and further distrust and disunity. Um, the example I use in the book is um, uh, um, a, a man named Colin Greaves, and he works with Greta Thunberg, and he uh, has been her speechwriter and worked on her team for years, and he works in youth advocacy for climate issues. And I met with him, and he said, you know, 
long ago I realized like the only way to make effective change in terms of climate change is to work on clean air. Clean air is the perfect example. Left, right, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Socialist, everyone can agree that we want clean air. We want clean air for our kids, right? It's really that simple. Okay, so how do we get there? Well, you know, there's going to be some government regulation, there's going to be, you know, community involvement, there's going to be corporate involvement, there's going to be some give and take, people might have different ideas on how to get there. But we have generally in the developed world had cleaner air over the last couple of decades, you see pictures of Los Angeles in the 70s and 80s, and the, the sky was just brown with smog. Mm -hmm. Now it's pretty rare when we get a smog day in Los Angeles, actually. So of course, when you reduce, when you create clean air, you reduce CO2 emissions. So it's ultimately good for the atmosphere and for climate change to have clean air. But that's, that's an example of how we can and should work together. Um, and, you know, for instance, you brought up gun control, like, um, I can see in some ways, I can see both sides, I try and put myself on the side of the political right and say, well, guns don't people kill people, people with guns kill people. In other countries, they use knives, there was just an axe attack in Brazil, some guy killed four people with an axe or something like that. And of course, if he had, had a gun, he probably would have killed 40 people and not four. Mm. But the point is that both things are true. We need to have regulation for guns, just like we have regulation on everything else. On, we have regulation on when you can go fishing and regulation <laughs> on when you can drive a car and regulation on how and where and when you can vote. So we need increased regulation on guns, but we also need to enforce the laws we already have in place, which is something that the political right is always talking about. So that might be a place where we can come together. Let's enforce, enforce the laws that we already have in place and make it watertight. You know, that's one place to start. So, you know, I, I disagree with um, kind of hardcore lefties that are like, we shouldn't even talk to someone who has said something that they perceive to be racist because they're a racist and we're giving them a platform and, and whatnot. I think that, you know, there's obviously a line if someone is coming out and just saying just overtly, heinously, uh, violently racist things, we shouldn't give them a platform. But we do need to be in a dialogue to find our way forward. We've tried the other way. We've, we've tried this. It's been, you know, it's been good 10 or 20 years of, of not doing it. It's not working. So let's, let's, let's try, try something different. Yeah. And another uh, subject you talk about so well in the book is the conversation around mental health. Now, I know you're a 70s kid. I'm a 90s kid. From your perspective, has the conversation around mental health gotten better or is it worse in the sense that, especially after the last few years with the pandemic, have things gotten worse on that side of the things? Or is it in a better place considering now that probably people my age and even younger are more upfront about their mental health? Oh, it's far better. Um, it's far better and it's far worse. The mental health mm. epidemic is one of the worst uh, pandemics facing humanity. It's the number one killer of young people. Um, suicides and suicidal ideation are through the roof, anxiety, depression, loneliness. The youngest generation is now the loneliest generation on the planet. Mm. It's the first time in human history that that's been the case. Um, isolation, alienation, and despair. Uh, but at least we have a vocabulary for it because when I was a kid in the eighties and, and when I was in my twenties in the nineties, I, I was suffering from a lot of, uh, mental health issues, especially anxiety, but also depression and loneliness and other issues, addiction. And there, we didn't have a vocabulary for it. I didn't know other people were feeling what I was feeling. There weren't any tools. There weren't any YouTube videos. There weren't any books. Yeah, yeah, there were therapists and I started going to some therapists. Even the therapist didn't quite know how to frame it. So we've made tremendous progress. We have the advent of um, positive psychology, which has given us a lot of tools around happiness. You know, that's part of what we explore in the Geography of Bliss show on Peacock is, you know, tools that we can learn from other cultures to help us have a greater rate of, of happiness and greater level of well-being. 
Um, but we're unhappier than ever. So there's more and more tools and there's more and more unhappiness. Hmm. Again, why we need a spiritual revolution. We're not going to get there with just better tools on being a happy person. And we're not going to get there with just kind of having more therapists. There's something, there is a gross imbalance in the world. And that I believe is the spiritual deficit that humanity is experiencing currently. I didn't realize only found out recently, I know that you were raised in the Baha'i faith, but I didn't realize that you actually pushed it away when you started going through your own mental health battles. Well, it was, it's actually the opposite of what you said. I, I right. pushed it away when I moved to New York right. and um, wanted to study being an actor. I wanted to be a bohemian. I, I didn't want morality. I didn't want to think about God and the spirit and the soul and blah, 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 and, you know, religion or anything like that. So I jettisoned everything having to do with faith and kind of went my own way, which a lot of young people do. Um, kind of a Baha'i version of Rumspringa the Amish tradition. And several years into it, that's when I started really suffering. And I was abusing drugs and alcohol, and I was very um, in porn, and I was very lonely, and I had anxiety attacks. And it was in the midst of that despair that I started a spiritual search to kind of say, well, wait a second, maybe leaving my spiritual life behind and just turning towards this life of being a freewheeling bohemian in New York, maybe I've lost something. So I should maybe investigate what I really think and what I truly believe. So that was a, a very long, many years journey of thinking about God, reading about God, reading various religious texts, learning about meditation, learning about Buddhism, and kind of a very long, slow, multi-year journey back to being a Baha'i, but uh, a different kind of a Baha'i, I would say, one that had reinvented for myself what it meant to be a member of this particular faith. And I should say, and I feel the need to say this, uh, that Soul Boom is not a book about the Baha'i faith. I mean, I draw on many Baha'i examples in it and some inspiration because that's my faith, but you don't need to be a Baha'i. You don't need to be a Christian. You don't need to be anything. You can be what most young people are, which is spiritual but not religious. And to start a, a spiritual revolution, we need everyone. We need people of all faiths. We need agnostics. We even need atheists. Um, it's very funny uh, that you're Australian. My friends moved to New Zealand and they're Baha'is and they started doing these youth and kid musical devotionals where they mm -hmm. pray and meditate and they learn about spiritual virtues and all the parents are atheists because it's new zealand everyone's an sure. atheist yeah so um but these atheist parents really want their kids to have morals they want them to learn how to be kinder wiser more joyful more compassionate more honest and they really don't mind the fact that there are these baha'i inspired classes and workshops and whatnot on spiritual virtues and on meditation and on prayer because they want their kids to have those tools even though they don't believe in any kind of higher power so we can all work on this together and we can all work shoulder to shoulder at with great empathy and incredible uh kindness and and service to each other to affect a transformation and i do have i know that sounds very kind of airy fairy pie in the sky but i do have some specifics in here there are some specific ideas and and takeaways and i have the final chapter is the seven pillars of a spiritual revolution so i i do put in some some takeaways it's all not it's not all just kind of pie in the sky nonsense i mean i ask this just because i'm such a fan of your work and and hearing the timeline of of you going in and out of your face where were you at, say, when you booked Galaxy Quest? Were you still very much on your spiritual search or were you very much back in? Um, that was right in the beginning. Thanks for asking. That's wow. 99. Yeah, that was yeah, 99. 99. I, I just moved to LA. I booked Galaxy Quest. I got a, a part in Almost Famous. Mm. I did House of a Thousand Corpses, a horror film. 
a couple of pilots, a couple of small parts on some TV shows and movies. I was just getting my film and TV career going. And that's when I was just tiptoeing back into the Baha'i faith, was investigating some, some meetings, reading a lot, pondering a lot. Uh, I started getting some more intensive therapy at that time. And um, that was, I was very early on in the process. Wow. Was there ever a, a fear that the more successful your career was going, that your, I suppose your mental health was going to go the other way? Well, it's funny you should mention that because I will say that um, one of the biggest mental health struggles I had was after I became famous. So, mm. um, and it wasn't um, like the other one, but it was, it was really a struggle with my own ego. Here I was early on in the office, I'd struggled for so long as an actor and all of a sudden I was famous. I was a TV celebrity. I was making a lot of money. I was hosting Saturday Night Live. Mm. I was starring in movies and, uh, and at the same time I was miserable and I was like, I wanted more. I was like, I deserve more. And I, mm. I was envious of other actors that whose careers were taking off and how come they get that and I don't. And I wanted, I wanted, it was not enough. And it's like, if, 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 if I had been able to kind of have the perspective to say, Hey, stop here a second. Like you, you're on a beloved TV show, playing a great character. You've got enough money. You've worked really hard. Like just enjoy what you have. Uh, that would have been really helpful, but I didn't have the perspective at the time. And there were some really difficult years. A lot of the projects that I did bombed and movies that I did didn't work and didn't, I, I, I still think they're pretty damn good, but. Um, Super is still one of my favorite movies. Super is a great Super. film. The Rocker is a really yep. fun family comedy. Um, a lot of the stuff that I did back then, but um, it, was, it was a different kind of struggle. So, and that's the, that's the ancient human struggle. That's, that's, that's how it works, you know? It's, um, we, um, it's never enough for us mm. dumb, dumb human beings and learning to be grateful for what we have, to enjoy the miracle of being alive the miracle of each breath of each heartbeat um, is a lifelong path. Yeah. No, I, I had, I mean, I've, I think I've told the story on the podcast before I had Josh Radner on who of course played Ted and how I met your mother. And he said something very similar to what you said that the more successful he got, the, the bigger the show got, the salary was. And mm. as a working actor, his goal and dream is to be a big success, but the more success he got, the more depressed he got. So it really mm. went hand in hand that career's going great, mental health is going down. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that was, I've heard him give that talk and I've mm. actually had a couple conversations with him around that. And uh, yeah, it was, it was very much the same thing. It was, it took me several years after that to kind of get out of it of like, hey, wait a minute. And now when I look back at like my life post the office, let's say, like I haven't had many breakout kind of hits but I've really enjoyed the hell out of the work that I've been doing. Like mm. I've gotten to play great roles in indie films. I've played cool villains and, you know, I got to play Harry Mudd on Star Trek and I, you know, I've got to direct a little bit and, and, and podcast and do some interesting roles in, in series. And, um, and it's, it's, it's my dream come true. I get to be a working actor playing really cool roles People may see them, they may not. That's out of my control. Do you think you mastered that by the end, particularly the end of The Office? Do you think you mastered that? You know what? Fuck the outside noise. Just enjoy the ride. Yeah, it was years after. Exactly. Right. It was, um, uh, yeah, I was struggling with it as The Office was ending and a little bit thereafter. But I don't know, the last eight or 10 years or so have been really generally pretty happy. You know, I, I still, I have an anxiety disorder. I can slip into depression pretty easily. I have to work on this stuff. I have to have a daily kind of spiritual maintenance to, um, to stay balanced. But um, generally I'm really super grateful and, and blessed and, you know, 
not to mention how fortunate I am that the show, The Office, was um, is so lauded and beloved by people. Um, it's it's really incredible. You do mention as well, like the, the there's plenty of funny throughout the book, and quite often you do like take shots at yourself of like who is this former TV star? Who is this minor celebrity? Is that an intentional thing that you've done to, to keep that ego in check? Because you mentioned earlier that that was one of the big problems is that you, you got an inflated ego. Well, it wasn't so much that it was finding the right tone of like, if I just wrote a spiritual treatise that was very serious, people would be like, what the hell? This is the weirdest thing I've ever read. Dwight from the office is writing a spiritual tweet treatise. But if I made it all comedy and didn't have any substance, that's not true to who I am and what I need to say. So I needed to find a tone that was right in the book where it's palatable, it's readable. Like you said, you read it in, a, in 24 hours. Mm. It's hopefully a, a page turner and has some nice self-deprecating humor throughout it. Um, so people can hear my voice through it, but at the same time, I'm not afraid to kind of dig into some really deep, dark, difficult topics. Because that was my my biggest fear is like, are people going to simply reject this because they don't, they can't wrap their minds around the guy from the office writing a book about spirituality. You've got a, a book tour coming up as well. And here in New York, I think you've got a in conversation with BJ Novak. Yeah. I know this is a very cliche question, but doing a book tour and, and Q&As is that anywhere near as daunting, if at all, compared to when a show or film comes out? You are having to get up on stage and essentially speak your mind and everything you've been thinking and feeling for the last, what, two to three years. Yeah, it's actually much more difficult. Uh, when you do a TV or film press tour, you know, you say, oh, I had a great time shooting this and I had a lot of fun with blah, blah, blah. And yes, we love the film and hope you'll go see it. And you dress up in a nice suit, you go on a talk show, you tell some funny stories and, and that's it. It can be grueling, the schedule, but it's pretty easy. But that you do the same thing on a book tour, but like we're doing right now, like mm. I have to be very present. I have to like really strive to be articulate and, um, and thoughtful and, um, uh, and uh, keep the, um, yeah, and, 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 See, I just totally lost my train of thought <laughs> because I was thinking about how hard this was. It can be incredibly challenging to yeah. to summarize a long, you know, three hundred page book, and and every show I go on, there's a different kind of audience. I've done some podcasts that are like self help. I've done some that are spiritual. I've done some that are comedic, and so I have to shift the tone as well to the people that I speak with, uh, depending on the audience. What was the Russell Braymon like? Because I think that was a blend of all those things you just said. Yeah, that was the first <laughs> interview that I did. Yeah, um, they were they needed to, uh, for whatever reason, they uh, some stuff happened. They needed to release it early. It was going to be released in a few weeks, mm -hmm. closer to the book launch. And um, so, but uh, yeah, I knew that Russell has an interesting audience. He definitely has people that are in the recovery community. He also has people that are interested in spirituality, but now he's gaining a big following that are kind of more, I don't even want to say like, they're not like right wing, but they're anti-authoritarian kind of Joe Roganites, mm. um, which is an interesting audience. And, um, and they have a lot of very legitimate gripes and points and, and thoughts and feelings. So um, at the end of the day, I don't really care anymore what i'm too old to really care what people think about me people are always mad at me for one reason or another it's okay it's fine. <laughs> um i'm doing fine and uh so at the end of the day i just needed to kind of speak my truth and and share my message and moving forward i know i mean according to imdb you have at least five projects in the works right now what can we expect from you at least in the next 12 months and they're going to get this book out and finally it be in the world What's coming up after that? Well, at three weeks after the book comes out, this TV show on Peacock comes out, The yep. Geography of Bliss, uh, which I'm so excited about. Um, traveling the world, searching for happiness. It was just a dream job. Um, I did a recurring role on this new series with Brie Larson 
um, lessons in chemistry. Uh, I just rapped on a movie called Code 3. Um, I did a small part in a movie with Robert De Niro. I got to actually act with Robert De Niro. It was wow. only for one scene, but that was a dream come true. And uh, uh, it's called, what's it called? Like Irrepressible Behavior or something. I think they're- Is, it the one, the is that the one with Rose Byrne and- Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, okay. That's exciting. Yeah, so uh, there's there's a bunch of there's a bunch of stuff out there. I've got some other scripts that I'm developing and um so there's there's a lot that'll be rolling out over the next year. People appropriate behavior. There you go. Appropriate <laughs> behavior. People who read the book will understand this. One of the pictures you mentioned in the book that you took around Hollywood was about uh I'm I'm going to explain this poorly, but if alien life forms were observing humans is that still alive somewhere because as you were pitching that in the book i was like i would watch the shit out of that show uh that was a podcast that idea which was a podcast by aliens for aliens <laughs> looking at and observing human culture right um <laughs> and these aliens are really interested in uh human uh media and popular culture so they're also watching succession and talking about tv shows <laughs> but they're also looking at like wait why do the humans continue to dump co2 into the atmosphere they know that <laughs> this is screwing up their planet like what and they just keep doing it and and but they can talk it allows a lens to see humanity through a, a very different perspective um and uh yeah so it's uh it, I haven't done anything with it. You know, it would be fun to, it would be fun to do, but um, I've also also only got so many hours in the day. And, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure how well that one would pay and whatnot. So. Yeah. Well, Rain, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was great to talk to you and great to meet you again. I'm such a big fan of your work. Um, personally, I'll see you in New York with BJ on your book tour. Oh, great. Um, oh, please but, say hi. Well, what do you want me to do? Yell from the crowd. Well, come come backstage and say hello. Well, um, okay. my publicist can give you more information on how to do that. Well, great. We'll do that. Well, Rain, thank you again. Congratulations on the book. I can't wait for everyone to read this again from someone who probably isn't from the, the spiritual, religious side of things. I completely related to it. It spoke to me. I loved it. Uh, Neil, I really thank you for reading it. And this has been a really wonderful conversation. And Thank you for your interest and, and support. And I'm so glad you're going to join me on this spiritual revolution. Thanks so much. This episode is sponsored by Atlantic Records. Stay up to date with everything happening at The Plug Podcast by following us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at theplug.podcast. Plug.podcast.